As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast where we will try to think through just that. How can Christians engage with questions of life, death and everything else in between? My name is Tim Wyatt and every episode I call up my dad, John Wyatt, to discuss issues in healthcare, ethics, technology, science, faith and more. I'm a religious and social affairs journalist, while he is a doctor, a professor of ethics and a writer and speaker on some of these issues. In other words, he's the expert but I'm here to ask the stupid questions, and hopefully some not so stupid, that help make sense of it all. Last time on Matters of Life and Death, John and I explored some of the history of plagues over the centuries and how Christians acted during these times. In today's conversation, we move on to look at the ways coronavirus, our current crisis, is different to anything that's come before, and what that might mean for us as followers of Jesus as we try and navigate it well. So John, where we left it last time was we had done a kind of brief historical overview looking at times of plague and pandemic in in the past, in the ancient world, going all the way up to what's often called the Spanish flu uh, epidemic of exactly 100 years ago, the last kind of large global, global um, epidemic we've seen. But obviously COVID-19, what we're experiencing today is in many ways really quite different to what we've um, seen in the past. Yeah, it's interesting to reflect on both the similarities and the differences, isn't it? And also, isn't it remarkable that uh, we've basically had a hundred years without there being a serious global pandemic, and um, and it's almost as though uh, the sovereign God has held back this pandemic to a point at which the technology has advanced. A digital communication technology advanced to such a level of sophistication that actually it's possible, despite being locked down around the world, to have an extraordinary level of communication between us. Mm. I don't know what about you, but it feels like to me that the Zoom video conferencing software is basically taking over my life and every single day I seem to do something rather on it. Um, It's quite remarkable how quickly we've all transitioned to this new way of living and working, separated out by distance, but still remarkably able to get quite a lot done, at least in yeah. some professions anyway. I mean, it's interesting to think, you know, what what would have happened if this pandemic had happened, say, 20 years ago, when all we really had was the telephone, and we'd be trying to having having sort of conference telephone calls. Um, or, um, you know, the, the technology now is so sophisticated that um, it just seems to work remarkably well. And, and um, 
just a couple of weeks ago, I was taking part in a um, a prayer a gathering, a prayer meeting, which was based in North Carolina. Over a hundred people uh, came in over Zoom, and and I was there from London giving a report of what's happening in London. And the technology worked incredibly well. So there is a very different aspect, isn't it? This technology is, um, it's not the same as face-to-face encounters, but it is something very remarkable. Definitely. And I think we've both seen that in our own church context as well, about how Christians have been able to um, use things like Zoom and other platforms to, even though, as you say, it's not the same as, as meeting corporately, as bodily, physically, as we've been doing for thousands of years, but you can you can still do forms of church home groups, prayer meetings and other stuff, uh, even though we're separated. And it, it seems to work better, really, than I expected it would. And it's giving people opportunities um, to to come in. Um, it, it's so easy in a way, isn't it, that we can sit in our living room somewhere and yet um, engage with people um, around the world. And I was just hearing um, yesterday about a, a small home group based at All Souls Church and they're having weekly Zoom meetings of their small group, but they're having people joining this small group from around the world. Yeah, and I've been speaking to quite a few uh, church leaders through my work, and <clears throat> and they've been saying not only have they been surprised at how, not easy, but how smooth the transition has been to Zoom, but they're seeing congregations that are sometimes 10 times larger than they would actually get on a Sunday morning in the in the building pre-COVID-19 now logging in to take part in services and to uh, and and what they're finding is a lot of the people who, who are not christians who are church shopping from other places though there is plenty of that happening but these are people who would not really have any engagement with the church family or community before the pandemic hit and so in a strange way moving a lot of our ministry and our services online has opened the door to a whole kind of field of evangelism and and witness that wasn't possible before there's a a class of people who were for various reasons not willing to to walk to their local church or get the or drive to their local church and come in the doors on a sunday but they are prepared uh, and are interested in in clicking in and logging in from the kind of security and the anonymity of their own home um and maybe that gives us a kind of strange opportunity yeah, and you know this is a recurring theme that that there are terrible things happening uh, because of the endemic, epidemic and um, you know bereavement and loss and uh, tragedy, and and yet at the same time this extraordinary way in which uh, by God's grace uh, evil things can be transformed, they can be redeemed, and unexpected and creative possibilities become apparent and. and and good things can emerge out of what seems so evil. Mm. And I think it's really clear that as well that you see, we've seen this in other countries during other periods, particularly wartime, that during these times of great stress and national crisis, particularly when people are forced to confront their own mortality, very possibly, and, and even maybe sadly see loved ones suffer and die, that people are more receptive and open to the bigger questions of life, spirituality, faith, who am I? Where am I going? What happens when we die? And you don't want to be um, morbid about this and, and be kind of rubbing our hands as this is a great opportunity for evangelism. But in a strange way, actually, churches often do grow through times of crisis and toil and, and trial. And I think there are going to be people who are previously quite secure in their um, unbelief who are now starting to question things. Mm-hmm.
so so one of the things I think that that um, this pandemic is doing is it is just uh, reinforcing a sense of our human frailty and vulnerability, isn't it? Um, I've seen this repeatedly as a medic in the past that, you know, so many modern people, we think that we can control our own lives. We think we're in total control. And then along comes biology and it just blows the whole thing skywards. And, and this is happening at a global scale that all those plans and um, the different things that people had imagined they were their control over their own lives have been completely changed and there's this deep sense of frailty of vulnerability of insecurity um, and of course that can work both ways it can lead to enormous sense of anxiety to a rise in mental health issues but it can also uh, awaken a sense of desire to uh, discover a deeper spiritual reality and it kind of connects with what we talked about last time about the Ars Moriendi, these medieval arts of death documents, and how we've, <clears throat> in the modern era, moved on from the idea that, that death is an ever-present nightmare stalking our lives, and we always need to be ready, and we've, got, and we've become a, maybe a little complacent, and, and maybe we ne- the world needed a shock, a crisis, a stressor, like the pandemic, to helpfully remind us, as you say, that we are not a control of our lives when they begin or when they end. Yeah, and this is a reality, of course. I mean, our modern idea of control and domination is really, in many ways, a modern fantasy. And um, human beings have always uh, teetered on the the brink of, you know, what are often called existential risks. And and pandemic is one of them. And it's uh, it's a reminder of of the vulnerability of us as individuals, but also even as a human race. Um, and it's a it's a huge wake-up call, I think, in, in lots of ways. And, you know, it, it'll be interesting uh, to see how, how long that lasts in a post-coronavirus. Will everyone just say, oh, well, thank goodness that's over and get back to life as before? Or, or will there be lasting change? Mm, I think it's really fascinating to think about whether we will divide time into BC and AC before corona and after corona or whether things will snap back fairly seamlessly once assuming at some point the lockdown is lifted and the pandemic is no longer a pressing threat. I've heard lots of churches for instance saying that they've been so enthused by the success of live streaming that they're going to carry on regardless even when their buildings are open although some then push back and say well hang on doesn't that undermine something about the importance of gathering together as a body of believers and it undermines your sense of trying to build a real physical community. So it'd be very interesting yeah. to see what lasts and what is fall, falls away from this strange time. And I think it's a recurring theme when it comes to technology that there are clearly positive uh, potential in, in extraordinary, unexpected ways. Uh, and yet at the same time, this digital technology is tending to downplay the value of face-to-face um, communication, even touch, you know, there's interesting work, quite some recent work showing that there are uh, a particular group of receptors on the skin which seem to respond to um, affective touch or to emotional um, and, and soothing touch and that in an age of lockdown, uh, that's one of the things that may well, there isn't enough of that kind of just human caring hugging and, and contact which which is very important 
I think that's really perceptive, actually. I've seen other people saying in the world of work, for instance, that what will happen in a post-coronavirus business sense is that it will now switch from being individuals previously were the ones who would push to work from home, whereas now it's going to be bosses and employers because they realise how much money they can save if they distribute their their employees back and close their offices down. But actually, while this has plenty of benefits for some, actually there's real losses if we all become these kind of atomized individual units who plug away into a computer in a small windowless office somewhere at home if we're lucky enough to have a big enough house to do that and we never actually gather together corporately to do work together. Yeah, and, and there are some deep theological themes there which it may be good to explore some other time about uh, human embodiment because it's it's Christianity in particular which emphasizes the importance of physical embodiment and even God himself in the person of Jesus takes on a human body and and engages in human contact. You know, but just thinking about some of the other differences between this pandemic um, I suppose one of the things is that journalists are having a field day aren't they and news media so you should feel that your profession has suddenly come back into prominence well it's a slight mixed blessing isn't it Um, I think uh, it is fascinating conceiving of this pandemic as the first in the information age if you think back to the last global one in 1919 um, there was very limited ability to transfer accurate information around the world about what was happening in different countries. Um, part of the reason it's, it's known as the Spanish flu is because uh, as Spain was a neutral country, the press was uh, more relaxed in, in reporting numbers of cases there. And actually it wasn't any more prevalent in Spain than anywhere else, but people failed to understand um, how, how it was rising in other countries because of that. Um, mm, that's interesting, I didn't know that. Yeah, and whereas today we have this kind of rolling feed of you can almost if you if your heart desires you can find minute death rates in sub-national regions from all over China and the United States and and it's caused this explosion of information you know I talk about it as this kind of fire hose of content where there's um which on one level is a boon for journalists you know journalism and industry which relies on content and data and and I know the BBC are seeing extraordinary viewing figures for some of their news bulletins and and hits on their website sometimes record numbers they've never seen before but at the same time I think there are there is a growing sense or at least I'm picking up a sense that people are thinking carefully and critically about what role journalism plays in a crisis and so there are debates developing around you know is it appropriate for journalists to be criticizing the government over things like testing if we're if this is a war should we not be all pulling together and we can leave the who said she said who is at fault until another time so there's an interesting dynamic about what is the role of a journalist during a public health emergency yeah no i i was reflecting on that as well and thinking that you know at the time of the second world war if the media had been constant stories about saying you know they were worried about the quality of the spitfires that were being produced and that the uh, pilots were inadequately trained and didn't have the right resources and and so on i think that would have been seen as as being disloyal and uh, not aiding the war effort wouldn't it but 
uh, is that just because times have changed or is that is that still reflect something a deep feeling in in the community that we're all in this together and what we need to do is pull together rather than be constantly sniping at our leaders i think there's definitely a really common theme there that i mean you see that in the opinion polling um, Boris Johnson and the government more broadly are seeing have seen an enormous surge in popularity um, and obviously that's not because they've done anything remarkable but it's that because people do as they say when, when, a, when a crisis like this hits they put aside their political partisan views they might not have voted for him but there's a sense that we all pull together so that definitely is still the case but what I think is fascinating is how journalism has lost its deference in the 70 years since World War II and I think there is, if there was a World War Three, there's no way that the newspapers and the broadcasters and the even more rambunctious media there is out there on, on social networks would be, um, you know, towing the party line and suppressing bad news and, and jollying up the troops. And they wouldn't, I, think, I don't think journalists see that as their role anymore, to be an arm of the government in times of crisis. And I would say, yeah. personally, as a journalist, I would push back on that. And I say the reason why accountability journalism and, and trying to hold the government's feet to the fire remains important is not just because uh, it's it's a good gotcha scoop moment for the journalist, but because the fear of being caught out motivates government ministers to take better decisions to, to the, the knowledge that they are being closely scrutinised, but not by parliament, which cannot meet anymore, but by these daily press conferences, acts as a, um, you know, without wanting to be kind of slight, trite about it, puts the fear of God into these ministers who are making life or death decisions and make sure that they go double back, check their working, listen to the experts and try and make the best decisions they can. Yeah, I, I can see the argument. And, and obviously we do live in a very different age from that of the Second World War. I mean, another interesting implication though of the rolling news is is um that it it can create a lot of anxiety and uh i'm just if worse than mental health issues i mean i think there are quite a lot of people in lockdown who already have feelings of levels of anxiety about the future and this constant fire hose of information and mortality statistics and latest breaking news um can actually feed this in a, in a very negative and unhealthy way and, and and many people are suggesting that you need to we all need to limit our exposure to to this rolling news about viruses and death and PPE and so on yeah I would definitely agree with that um, I have no doubt unfortunately that one of the sad and probably fairly long-term side effects of the pandemic and the lockdown in particular will be uh, a, a significant lasting increase in in mental health problems in the population at large. Um, I'm fortunate enough that I'm not someone who has suffered from anxiety or depression like or things like that in the past. But even I, you know, I've spent quite a lot of time as a journalist delving into fairly unpleasant things in the process of reporting stories. But even I have had to kind of make myself step away because it was just getting too bleak at times and, and having your head spending hours mindlessly, bleakly, grimly scrolling through the uh, yeah. mortality statistics from various hotspots of the virus and trying to read all the different epidemiological studies about what's going on next and it just gets too much 
Yeah. I mean, one of the things from a medical perspective, which is quite amusing, is that, is that until recently, public health doctors and epidemiologists were about the bottom of the pecking order, you know, I mean, just to do with drains. And it's so deadly dull and boring and all those models and so on and the really interesting medicine is genomics and neuroscience and cardiac surgery and all the rest so so now all of a sudden these epidemiologists have become the rock stars you know and everyone is fascinated <laughs> about r naught and you know what the latest modeling shows it's yeah. it's extraordinary and who would have thought people like Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance <laughs> become literal household names? Yes. You know, people yes, who couldn't well, pick the Minister for Health out, out of a lineup suddenly are talking in great detail about how we're going to get the R number below 2.5 and what the incident fatality rate is and about flattening the curve. It is remarkable how quickly we've all come up to speed. Yeah. Well, it is. It's fascinating. We've all become become experts on on the worries about um, you know re uh, reemergence of um, epidemics and vaccine developments and all the rest. Um, but I, I do think these things are going to be around for for quite a long time. And and in some ways, it's healthy. Um, people in the NHS are aware of um, you know again extraordinary changes within the NHS um, part to, partly is just this wave of public affirmation um, I mean it's often been said that the UK is a is like a, a state religion um, sorry that the NHS is like a state religion in the UK and uh, I think you can see that in in terms of everyone um, expressing such positive things about it and People working on the inside have noticed that the morale within the NHS has has improved dramatically. I mean, I mean, the truth is, you know, over the last few years, morale in the NHS had really declined, and there was a, a deep sense of world weariness and in in an age of austerity, a feeling that uh, no one really cared about uh, the the struggles that the NHS was going through. Um, but many people have found that morale in the NHS now is, a, is at an all-time high and um, people are finding the speed of response, the speed with which, you know, areas have been changed. Uh, clinicians have often complained that managers never listen to them, never do anything, and now all of a sudden things are happening um, within days of requests being put out and wards being cleared, and, you know, the Nightingale hospitals being created. Um, some trusts are offering free food for... Um, all the frontline workers, um, gifts, are, you know, people are turning up at hospitals and clinics bearing gifts. It, it is an extraordinary uh, change. And, and one of the questions, of course, is how long this will all last um, in in the post-corona era. But, it, but maybe it is reinforcing how the centrality of healthcare when, when a, uh, a, a community is under enormous threat from, uh, from a medical invasion. I think that's I think that's absolutely right that you know increasingly we talked about our increasingly atomized world and and maybe the NHS is that last remaining pillar of a kind of social glue that pulls us together and that you know with the exception of a tiny handful who go through private it's almost one of these like unifying life experiences that we're all born in through the NHS and we all go to GPs and we all experience this in its various ways together and and um I thought it was fascinating. I read something talking about this idea of state religion and kind of taking it a bit further and saying, think about the government's communication strategy. You know, that slogan that we've had shoved down our throats, stay at home, 
protect the NHS, save lives. And what's fascinating is that many other countries have a very similar slogan, but it's only two parts. It's stay at home, save lives. Whereas I think correctly and wisely, the the spin doctors behind that one recognise that people would be motivated to make huge sacrifices, to stay at home, to cut themselves off from social contact, potentially to lose their jobs, source of income. And the motivating factor is, yes, it's saving lives, but it's also about protecting the NHS. And this idea of preventing our our national health service from being overwhelmed is has really caught the imagination in a way that I think has really helped people in the UK abide by the rules on social distancing. Yes, and it puts a kind of spotlight, doesn't it, on the health professions. I mean, you know, if you take the war analogy, it's like, you know, most of the people on the home front are just sitting on their backsides and they're warm and well-fed and watching Netflix. And then there's this small group of our frontline troops who are out there undergoing extraordinary hardships, risking their lives, going through very long, gruelling shifts, unpleasant psychological experiences, um, watching people die, taking hard clinical decisions. And, um, and yet what's going on out there in the ITU seems strangely distant from us who are basically all in the lockdown. Hmm. They are the troops on the front line and we are the generals 20 miles behind the trenches. And I think that's the great paradox, isn't it? In that, in this war analogy, um, you know, ordinarily in a war analogy, you mobilise the population. And so you're either, you know, commissioned into the army and sent off to fight. Or if you're not that, then you go and work in some essential factory back home. Whereas how do we, how do I, as a journalist, not a medical professional, win the war? I just stay at home. It's remarkably passive. And I think that's why so much attention, the Thursday evenings clap for the NHS, has why, you know, all these rainbow posters in the windows thanking our NHS heroes. The reason that surged is because they are the visible locus of activity, of battle against the virus. When we're all sitting at home, they are the only ones actually going out there and doing something. And that's why we transfer all our energies kind of emotionally onto them. from a Christian point of view one of the interesting things is uh, I think the importance of of Christian communities and churches to be seen to be actively supporting for praying for members of the church families who are there out on the front line Um, you know one of the things that I often feel a bit frustrated about in my own local church is that it puts an enormous emphasis on the roles of mission partners who are often doing medical or nursing work in a distant country on the other side of the world and there's much earnest prayer and concern is for them but the activities of all the people within the church who are working within the NHS uh, up till now seems to have been largely ignored and seen as irrelevant to the work of the church but I, I'm hoping that it, it does reinforce this idea that, that all church members are actually on the front line in different senses, not just medics and health professionals, but in all sorts of different ways. We, the lay people in the, in the Christian community, have an essential role as, as the outreach arm of the Christian community. I think what's interesting about that, to gently push back on that, is the idea that why is it that one particular profession medicine is is it right that that be kind of lionized above all others i mean what about someone in your church community who's a cleaner 
you know, paradoxically at this point, just as important is to keeping, whether it's a care home or a bus, clean. That helps to prevent infection, but no one thinks to clap for them or to, or to hold them up as some exemplar of, of, of Christian service. Maybe we need to expand our definition of, of what it looks like to be in ministry for the Lord. Well, I totally agree. And, and I mean, I, we're talking really about emergency workers. It's people who, in this national emergency are out there sometimes risking their lives. You're absolutely right. It includes cleaners, it includes bus drivers, care workers, as well as ITU doctors and nurses. Um, and it's and it's really important that churches recognise that and, and try and support them. Uh, and the point I'm making is that it's not the Christian professionals, it's, it's not the vicars and the mm. worship leaders um, who are the key players and and I hope that this is one of the things which which will move against what's sometimes called clericalism the idea that it's Christian professionals who are the really the most important people within the Christian community. Mm. There's been a lot of movements particularly in the Church of England but in other denominations as well in recent decades about trying to overcome that clericalism and almost unlock the potential of the lay people the laity and I wonder whether this pandemic this lockdown might accelerate that if you have a very high view of the priest but they're stuck at home just like you are and they can't really do anything apart from you know turn on their webcam and and broadcast a sermon whereas as you say the people who are out there in the community are more likely to be lay people and so maybe this will hopefully this will be a kind of accelerant a catalyst to continuing that move to kind of every member ministry unlocking all the gifts and potential for ministry of every person in the church family yeah, I really hope so. And actually, it's just occurred to me that in a way, Zoom is is a um, is an example, isn't it, of body life, of the fact that everybody is there on the screen and has a, and has a unique contribution. In that sense, it's very different from a streaming service where you just see um, the 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 preacher or the person singing and leading worship but you don't see everybody else i think that it's quite nice that on zoom you get all the windows of everybody who's there definitely and this actually ties in with something i heard from a theologian who specializes in digital kind of intersection of digital technology and theology a few weeks ago and he said almost a decision a church makes whether they're going to be a zoom church or a live stream church could end up unintentionally shaping their response to the pandemic because he the way he saw it was churches that live stream are outward facing you know that anyone who from around the world can find that live stream freely accessible on the on the internet and log in but as you say there's not that communal sense because no one else is who no one has any idea who else is on the live stream it's it's a very presentational from the church family from the church leader out to the world whereas churches that go down the zoom route you can see everyone's face it becomes deeply interactive you know in my own church people are stepping up and doing and serving in various ways one family is leading a song one family is doing the reading one family is doing the prayers it becomes a whole team effort but it is by definition more closed off it's invisible to the outside world unless you have the the kind of magic url link that gives you access and so there's a danger that that you miss out on this thing we talked about earlier about using the pandemic as a way, an online church as a way of reaching a new community who didn't previously attend. <laughs> That's really interesting, isn't it? And it just shows you how technology and choices about technology has have all kinds of unforeseen and unanticipated consequences. 
But I, I, I do hope that this is one aspect that um, w- will lead to permanent changes in in Christian churches, and and in particular will oppose a, the clericalism, which I have to say I see as a very negative force in in many churches and a disempowerment of ordinary lay um, Christian people, and an over focus on on often the man, the mighty man, or the mighty ordained person who is the special the special chosen one. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think it would be really fascinating to see over time whether these changes we're seeing right now stick or whether we bounce back to the, to the before coronavirus world. Um, I think we'll probably draw it to a close there. We've, we've touched on how this pandemic is different to previous ones and and I think next time we're going to speak, we're going to look a bit more detail about how we can respond as Christians to this remarkable, unprecedented, there's an overused word, and strange situation. <laughs> Great stuff. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you'd like to dig deeper into some of the things we've talked about, you can find lots more to read, listen and watch at John's website. He's uploaded resources on everything from assisted suicide, to the big picture narrative of the Bible, to artificial intelligence, all free to access and share. Please visit johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T dot com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast apps. The music in the show is by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. <laughs>